your girl Smanji and welcome to the 32nd episode of Avocado and Honey. If you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to Avocado and Honey on whatever you're listening to this episode on, as well as Avocado and Honey on YouTube. Um, if you didn't know, there is an Avocado and Honey Instagram page, so yeah, go ahead and follow it. Um, so let's get into this episode. I have the dope Darren in the house. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Glad to be here. Definitely glad to be here. I'm glad you are here. How's your day? It's good. You know, uh, long day. Always long days out here. Um, this daylight savings thing gets to throw me off a little bit, but you know, still getting things done. Still, still. You got an extra hour, so that's yeah, good. Exactly. The extra hour is definitely needed for some sleep reasons. You know? <laughs> Catch up on rest. But exactly. yeah, so back uh, not too long ago, we had a really um, dope conversation on like a cultural bias when it comes to standardized testing. So that's why you are here today. We're going to talk about that because you are a professor and you do just a whole bunch of things. You're like the Renaissance man. Yeah, so I'm not a professor. I'd Basically. say, you know, I'm still in graduate school. So right now I'm in my fourth year in grad school at uh, the Graduate Center. CUNY is one of the City University of New York schools. Um, and I'm getting my PhD in social psychology, basic and applied social psychology. So it's a lot of, you know, research or um, learning about different theories of psychology, different practices in psychology. Um, and within that, because, you know, I guess I finished teaching, taking all my classes, I'm all certified to, to teach. So I adjunct a couple classes at uh, Megar Evers College um, and at Bronx Community College in New York. Um, so, you know, I guess I am a professor. I do professor things, but I'm not, that's not my title. I'm just an adjunct instructor, but, you know, I do professor Things, yeah. But, so, what, um, what, um, how's teaching? How's it been so far? Well, it's really interesting because I'm teaching in, in New York City um, at these uh, CUNY institutions, which are public institutions for New York uh, citizens. Um, unlike a lot of other different uh, schools, maybe um, you think of state universities, maybe private schools or liberal arts schools, uh, Ivy League schools. A lot of the schools in New York are really for, for people in the community. So, a lot of the people that I teach uh, are minorities, people of color, uh, marginalized individuals, um, and that's been a very uh, enriching experience uh, because I come from a predominantly white institution where I was one of the only few black students in the classroom, mm -hmm. um, and just being in a class full of black students and then being a, uh, a black professor who can then teach you or teach these students something that they might be able to use in the future for whatever they want to do. Um, in relation to psychology, or even outside of psychology. So it's been a cool experience so far. I've only been doing it for two semesters so far. Um, but, you know, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy the, the being able to engage with, with uh, the black youth. Mm -hmm. And what are some differences that you, like, noticed immediately when you started uh, teaching? Because you said you grew up um, around in a white... You grew up basically learning in a white institution, and now you're teaching in, with the, uh, predominantly black and minority children. Yeah, so it's really interesting because when I went to high school, my high school was really diverse. There was people from a lot of different socioeconomic backgrounds, a lot of different racial backgrounds, religious backgrounds. Um, so like in the classroom, especially in AP honors classes, you would have a population of uh, you know people of color, people of marginalized groups, um, and even in the core classes, in the regular classes. So diversity was the thing that I kind of grew up with, but then going to... Uh, University of Delaware, that's where I went to um, my uh, undergraduate experience at. It was completely different. So there were students there, you know, white students that have never talked to or experienced a black student before. 
or a black person before. And then on the other side, a lot of uh, black students who never even had, uh, you know, experiences talking to, to white people. So, you know, having that experience um, really made me interested in kind of trying to, you know, understand, you know, some of these dynamics and how some of people's experiences might affect how they interact with um, people of different races. Um, so I really, you know, going to a predominantly white institution, uh, it was a lot of times my teachers were, you know, white, um, my uh, all the TAs were white, um, but then when I was a sophomore, uh, second semester, I took a class, it was perspectives on um, black uh, American psychology, um, and the professor was this man, Dr. Dr. Payne, Dr. Yasser, Arafat Payne, legend, um, <laughs> shout out Yasser, you know what I'm saying? Um, shout out. And he was one of the only black professors that I've ever had, even black instructors growing up you know, in the classroom, never really had a lot of black instructors that were black men, um, you know, black women, um, you know, maybe maybe some stereotypes about women and teaching and things like that. So you'd see more black women teaching, but not really black men. And that experience um, really opened my eyes, not just, um, you know, learning about perspectives on black um, American psychology, but really seeing how research and how studying some of these things in depth might actually be able to shed some light on some social issues that people deal with in regards to uh, race and, and class and all these other types of things. And then having a black professor who was a male who could identify with, and I see myself <clears throat> in front of the classroom, you know, seeing him in front of the classroom really made me feel as though maybe I could be in front of the classroom too. Maybe I can do this academia thing. Um, so that's when I really started getting involved with research at my school, um, applied here, and you know, luckily I was able to uh, able to get in. Um, so on the flip side, now that I've gone through all my classes and I'm able to teach, it's really awesome to have that experience to be that same person that inspired me to get go into psychology. A lot of students that I I talk to, you know, they just do psychology. They don't really know why. They don't really understand. But you know, having somebody to really be a beacon and a guide who's gone through it and has really gone through it. You know, not too long ago, I was just an undergrad, you know, within the past four years. So mm -hmm. it's really like this all is fresh to me. And I feel like um, that experience and being able to relay a lot of that, um, being as, uh, that I'm, you know, maybe from the same generation or close generation to the students that I teach uh, has been really um, enriching. And I've had a lot of opportunities to, you know, talk to students and a lot of feedback um, from students saying, you know, that I've impacted them in some way. So it's really cool being on the other side of all that. That is cool. We definitely do appreciate what you are doing. Um, so how did you like normally, how do you prepare for testing? Because you have to take a test in order to get into the schools that you go to. You, you have to take a test while you're in school. You just yeah. test, 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 test. So how test, do you test. prepare? Well, it's really interesting because um, I was a McNair Scholar at the University of Delaware. And within a lot of that, uh, there was a lot of uh, you know, professional development, and there was a GRE course that they, they gave to us, um, which I, I took the course, of course, um, you know, but when I took it the first time, I noticed I got the mean, like, I got the 50th percentile. That's, like, the median score. Um, so I was really smack right in the middle, um, and I had gone through the prep, and it was, like, interesting that I still didn't do as well. So, of course, uh, I took it again. I uh, did some more prep. I wasn't able to maybe afford to, you know, do 
you know, a whole entire Kaplan session. But luckily enough, uh, somebody I met on my campus, um, he was uh, the brand representative for Kaplan. So I was able to be a brand rep and actually get some resources from Kaplan for for that, um, you know, kind of like that informal wave, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, you know, then I studied again and I still got the same exact scores. So mm-hmm. it was like, hmm, I did the work. Really interesting that I was able to put myself in the position to maybe succeed, but I didn't really do that well in comparison to maybe the rest of the country who took the test at the same time that I did. Um, So within that, when I was applying to schools, uh, it was really interesting seeing who would call me back, Mm -hmm. who wouldn't call me back. So. Well, who did call you back? Uh, to be honest, here, CUNY is the only place that I got an interview from. Actually, maybe I'd say an in-person interview. So another school that I applied to, uh, I also got an interview there. And, you know, I guess maybe because I already got in here, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm so excited. Um, but they ended up waitlisting me. Um, but when it comes to the other schools that I applied to, a lot of them were, you know, were like big-name schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and my advisor at the time um, he was, you know, kind of a big name himself. So working with him, you know, exposed me to all these other type of researchers and also having that letter of recommendation was good. But it really came down to, to my scores a lot of the time. So I noticed, like, these people, like, I've met some of these people that I'm applying to work with. I've, you know, maybe cited some of their research or my advisor knows some of their people. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like that type of informal, but I still wasn't able to get into the door a lot of the times, except for for CUNY. Um, So when I got in, you know, out of curiosity, I'm just asking around, like, you know, you know, all this different type of stuff. And and they said that they don't really consider GRE scores as a stopping point for admission. So, Mm -hmm. you know, learning about the back door and all that stuff. So a lot of the times to screen applicants, the first thing that they look at is your GPA and your uh, GRE scores. And I had a pretty decent GPA coming out of undergrad, but my GRE score was just average. It was flat. It was nothing special. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you're looking at me just on my GRE score, I'm not going to get past the first round. So the first round is, you know, they weed people out, and then they put the applications on somebody's desk to read, and then after that, chooses a group of people to then have interviewed. So it's like, if you don't have that score, you might not even get past the first round. Nobody might not even look at your application. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was really... I guess a benefit for me that CUNY decided to maybe look at my other things. So the fact that I was a McNair scholar and the fact that, you know, I did work with somebody who, uh, you know, had, uh, had does a lot of research and uh, is really prominent in the field. So without that holistic approach, then I wouldn't have even gotten into grad school. Then I would have had to take the GRE again. I probably would have had to pay for a course. Maybe I got the 160, 165. And then everyone would be calling me because that's right. just how it works. Yeah, it's really that testing really has an impact where you might not even be seen just because the fact that you might not be good at a test or you didn't have the money to pay for test prep or, you know, you're coming from a, a position where you don't even uh, have the ability to, to do well because of maybe your environment or your, your background, something like that. So that's basically the definition of cultural bias when it comes to standardized testing, or do you have a different definition for well, it? Well, when it comes to to the bias, it's... Uh, it's interesting that you say that because not only I feel like the tests are used for bias, right? I see. But there's also bias within the test, right? Um, so I was I taught intelligence like maybe two weeks ago in my my undergraduate class. I teach intro to psychology, and they were teaching us about IQ. They were they were talking about IQ and all these different types of things related to IQ. It was really interesting. They had some sample questions, 
And one of the sample questions had to do with, I think, Mark Twain, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I just look at the question. I just pause. I'm like, does any, who knows who Mark Twain is in this classroom, right? Maybe one or two people raise their hand, right? Mm-hmm. And this is supposed to be an IQ test. So this is supposed to be something that is supposed to test my aptitude on something. Right. But I don't know who this person is or what this, this what you're referencing in the in the test to even be able to give you a good answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know that's something that you, that happens even on the on the on the small scale. So I have to make tests too. Um, and teaching at CUNY, a lot of students are from overseas, um, from different cultures, and maybe not don't understand some of the linguistic culture that you know people use. Maybe New Yorkers use or something like that. So one of my test questions last test we had dealt with, uh, you know, um, I think I was teaching about conditioning or something like that, or punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, you know, a police, li- or no, it was about memory. So I brought up uh, a police lineup and what type of memory that is. But mm-hmm. some students were like, I don't know what a police lineup is. Oh, wow. So now I'm like, all right, well, you're supposed to be able to answer this question. This right. Time, but you don't know what I'm referencing to even be able to answer the question. Mm-hmm. So if I, you know, some people, they raise their hands like, what is a police lineup? I was able to answer them during the test and things like that. But just the small things, you don't even realize, you know, especially as an instructor, that you're kind of placing your own cultural expectations or cultural norms within your testing, and that may not apply to somebody from a different culture. Right. I remember um, an episode on Good Times. <sighs> I can't remember all the characters' uh, names. Yo, y'all forgive me. (laughs) But um, the light-skinned brother, Mm -hmm. he was taking a test, and one of the questions, he ended up walking out because he thought the questions were stupid and racist, which they were. But um, one of the questions that I do remember is, um, I I think it was like, which word relates to a cup? I think it was. Yeah. And it was like the options were like table, saucer, chair, and like plate. Or not, I don't think it was plate. So uh, most people, like off top, I was like, oh, table is what I thought. I was like, yo, mm-hmm. that, that kind of relates with a, a cup. It sits on a table. But the correct answer is a saucer. Yeah. But it's just like, I never grew like, up with a saucer, though. The like, saucer is <laughs> that, uh, that little plate that goes underneath your your, your, your yeah, mug like tea or your teacup. Yeah. yeah. But like we you know, people in I'm from Compton, we don't have saucers in yeah, the house. Yeah. So it's like, like what's a saucer? Like a UFO? You know? Right. <laughs> no, I know what it is. We just never use yeah. it. So it's just like it never it a table. We put our cups on a table. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So yeah, that's an example of the bias that goes on with it because it's it's not for us. Right. <laughs> you know, and it's like this happens all the time. People know this but, you know, it still kind of seeps its way into everyday thinking. Um, so, you know, applying for jobs, you know, doing different things where you do have to get assessed in some way. People are really putting their own, putting their own perspective on who is, um, who is capable, who, ha- who has aptitude or mm-hmm. intelligence to be able to do this thing that we're testing you on. You know, within that, it's really hard for a lot of times for people from different countries, from uh, maybe uh, marginalized backgrounds, like you said, to really do well, not because they're unintelligent, just because they don't know the cultural dynamics of the thing that they're being tested on. Right. You know, that's it's a really it's a real challenge, and I think that you know there's still a lot of work that that can be done with that, um, both on the testers' side, so people who are making these standardized tests, but then also. Uh, maybe on the um, institutional side, so maybe not putting as much weight on these type of uh, assessments or trying to be more holistic about them. 
um, and really allowing for people to give have the option to shine in other areas that they may not necessarily be considered in right at that front door. Mm-hmm. Um, what know. do you think, how could we like improve it on like I guess the person or the people who create these standardized tests like what are the necessary steps to kind of make it unbiased that's really hard um that's a that's a long very long-winded question Mm -hmm. um but really simply just getting more you know people from different backgrounds in the room because this has been like a a topic um for a long time time. I mean good times is 1970 so right right so like when you think about intelligence like who gets to define what's what intelligence is you know and it all shows in the language. Mm-hmm. What's a saucer? It's fancy, like this fancy saucer, like, and I'm supposed to be able to link one into, you know, it's right. really interesting. Um, but you know, get more people in the in the in the room when you're making the tests that are from different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Same solution to a lot of other different bias things. Just be more inclusive, not about who the test is for, but who is also making the test. Do you think it'll be a good idea to maybe have tests? Um, different tests on the type, the area? Well, yeah, that's another thing that I was going to bring up. I think that it's important to, to know your population that you're testing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my example about my student not knowing what a police lineup is, now, having, after that experience, I know that maybe I should think about the types of questions I'm giving. I shouldn't be asking people about, like, Beyonce and, you know, all these things, because maybe some people don't, like, know about that mm-hmm. or don't know about... I mean, about, everyone knows Beyonce. Right, I mean, all right, nah, <laughs> no shade, no, no shade to, to, the, to the podcast, to listeners, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, you know, I'm just using that as an example. Yeah, I'm like, just joking. Not everyone knows, like, every single song on Beyonce, but if you think that's what makes somebody musical, like, intelligent in music, right. then, you know, that's your, that's your perspective. What is visual intelligence? Like, what is musical intelligence, what are all these different types of intelligence? Who gets to define it? I mm-hmm. think that's, uh, that's one way to, to really understand is to know who your population is so that you can be able to address and speak to them more directly. What do you think is like, would be a good question for a standardized test that wouldn't be biased? Like what, what's a good question? Like we can't ask things on books and stuff because it's, uh, you know what I'm, I I know that. Yeah, um, good question. That's a, that's a hard question to answer, though. That's, that's, <laughs> good questions are hard to answer. That's why we ask them, right? Um, but I'm trying to think of some examples for myself. So, um, you know, in the reading comprehension stuff from the GRE I took, I don't really remember what it was about, but I think it was, like, about marine animals or something. I'm, mm-hmm. just, I'm just, like, going trying to go back to that, that moment. But it's, like, you know, some of those things, like, comprehension questions or, like, problem-solving questions where it's, like, you need to kind of have some type of abstract insight about what these things are. Mm-hmm. I think that maybe trying to be more concrete about those types of things um, okay. and not using culturally specific examples in the in your tests would be a good way to maybe start. That would be a good way to start. After our conversation, I realized I didn't know much on um, cultural bias when it comes to testing. So I did a little bit of research before the interview, and I found an article um, that was published not too long ago in 2007, which is only 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the headline or the title was basically uh, black people, genetically black people are just dumber than white people. Mm-hmm. And that just like yeah, blew see, my mind. See, you know, it's really interesting that you say that too, because, um, you know, when you think about genetics and intelligence, uh, it really makes me think about maybe back in the early 1900s, the birth of psychology 
and a lot of the stuff with Charles Darwin and survival of the fittest. Um, and within that, the argument was really that, you know, there are superior people, superior mm-hmm. genetics, superior, um, you know, superior traits that humans have. And some people, um, because of their superior traits, might have better life outcomes than others. That's kind of like that survival of the fittest, but applied to maybe human outcomes. But I feel like survival of the fittest really talks about uh, the eco- ecosystem mm-hmm. and evolution versus like, you know, this microcosm of uh, time that we're experiencing in, in the world, right? right? But either way, so that argument of the survival of the fittest really became this way for the dominant group, whites, um, Europeans, to then categorize people who didn't have some of these traits that they considered human. So intelligence, emotion, creativity, um, abstract thought, all these different types of things um, that we consider human, we used, or at the time, intelligence was used to really subjugate groups of people who were seen as less human. Right. So, you know, someone who isn't as intelligent, they're, you know, that you're, you're sub, subhuman because you're right. not intelligent, because you don't have secondary emotions like empathy and, you know, all these things. Um, so I think that, especially when it comes to that argument is really interesting that it's still being put out today um, because it really, there's a lot of research that contradicts all that stuff with, you know, uh, genetics and intelligence and genetics and uh, physical human capabilities and all these things. Um, but you still see this really uh, strong group trying to argue that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we can really speculate why. There's a lot of reasons why. But one of the reasons why I think is mainly because. You know, there has to be this narrative that there's this group is unintelligent because if this group is unintelligent, that means that my group is intelligent, right? right? So the thing that they don't tell you about this intelligence stuff is when they give the people intelligence tests, people or so, you know, Asians score higher than whites, right? Right. But nobody talks about that. You know what I mean? It's always just white and black. Yeah, it's always about, oh, you know, these people are not as smart as us. We're like, how about... You know, these other groups that are smarter than you, who's, who on average score better on these IT tests or these, you know, standardized tests mm-hmm. than your group. You never talk about that relationship. It's always about trying to use that to, to as in a derogatory way to put people down. Right. Um, so. And also not to mention just like the poor schools and like the hoods and stuff with like lack of resources and things. So we're not really equipped with like prepared to learn exactly you know um it's really interesting where i grew up in i grew up in south jersey like i said diverse place the first place i lived until maybe i was like 11 or 12 uh was this town uh called uh this is this is town right (laughs) um and in this town it was mostly uh, african americans um and uh because of that you know a lot of and this was like maybe in the late 80s early 90s a lot of the white people who lived there started moving out. So, like, people from Philadelphia and, like, Trenton and, like, Camden, mm-hmm. all these, like, urban places started moving into this town, and all the white people left. So, with that, all the resources also got sucked out of the town. Mm-hmm. Um, so, my parents, you know, we lived there for, like I said, maybe 10, 15 years, and we moved out. We moved away to the town next, do- uh, next door, literally the town next door. Um, and I went to high school there, and comparing my high school experience there to... Where I was originally born, I would have had such a vastly different experience. You know, I could have been the smartest person at the school I was uh, that I come from, the, with uh, the mostly minority students. Mm-hmm. But because there's such a lack of resources there, there's no sports, there's no you know 
uh, books, textbooks that were used and were years right. and years old. You know, people, students, people who teach there don't stay for more than two years because mm-hmm. they can't handle the students. Then you put on top of that violence, crime, all the stuff that's happening outside of school. And, you know, even if you were to excel in that school, you're not con- even considered at the same level as somebody who went to the school that I actually graduated from, the high school I actually graduated from, because there are more resources. And because mm-hmm. there are more resources, we had uh, better teachers, tenured teachers. We had textbooks that were fresh every year. Got to get that book sock because they would get mad at you. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's like that within that, it really goes to show that it's not even really about the intelligence, the genetic attitude, the nature of someone thinking more so than it is the environment that they learn in. Having skilled instructors to give them instruction who are invested in their education and who also have the resources to be good instructors. Um, There's a vast disparity within the classrooms that are mostly minority and the classrooms that are diverse or, of course, the classrooms that are mostly white. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not necessarily about who's smarter than the other. It's just about who gets to exposed to the most information by the most skilled teachers. Right. And who has the privilege of doing that? People with money, um, people from different backgrounds, and a lot of minorities may be coming from, to, to be short. So because um, of that, you can't really put it on one thing. You can't put it on genetics. Right. You know, of course, you know, people are born um, with mental deficiencies or, you know, are differently able. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's another argument. Right, it is. It's really another argument because somebody who may have Asperger's syndrome may be the best violin player in the world, you know, but mm-hmm. they're not doing well in the classroom. They can't, you know, sit, understand what's going on, whatever. I don't necessarily know the exact details of Asperger's, but... So I'm not going to you know, start assuming things. But you know what I'm saying? But they're really, they have this other knack, this other talent, this like really deep you know, thing they're good at. And what, what about that person? So are they disabled? Are they unable to, to learn? Are they unintelligent? Mm-hmm. Um, or I kind of is... want to um, talk about like language and intelligence. Because me, I grew up mainly in Compton, California. Shout out Compton. Shout out LA. <laughs> um, and I mean, I, yeah, so I graduated from Washington Prep, Prep in, um, <laughs> in um, L.A., and I went to Orange County, which was Fullerton, and that was a culture shock for me because majority of the people there were Caucasian and, like, Asian and right. Indian, everything but black. Yeah. So, I mean, back in Compton in L.A., I was considered, quote-unquote, the smartest. Not the smartest, but smarter. Yeah. Um, I don't know why. I mean, I feel like... I mean, I studied just as much as everyone else, but it wasn't until college I realized, like, holy shit, like, I wasn't really taught much. Mm. And um, then, you know, I went in with my bonics and stuff, you know, shout out to public speaking for improving (laughs) (laughs) my speaking. But, um, yeah, and I just remember being insecure about, like, you know, just questioning myself if I was even smart because I said shit like um, axe instead of ask and stuff like that. So, and just, like... I know I, hate, I always bring up Cardi B, but, like, uh-huh. Cardi B, touch, she has a special place in my heart because, you know, she came out, you know, she was a stripper and all that, but just, like, the way she, she spoke, of course, it was hard for me to understand because she's um, Spanish from the Bronx, but right. now she's, like, improving and stuff like that, but I just hate when people just talk shit about her just because they feel like she, just because they can't understand what she says, they assume that she's that dumb. she's ignorant, right? So, um, yeah, I think that when it comes down to that, a lot of the times... Language is power, right? Mm-hmm. So 
being able to write eloquently, being able to speak in, in, in an influential way is very powerful and being able to use language in ways to influence people, right? But when it comes down to language, language is also cultural. So, you know, who's to say that who speaks properly in what situation or not mm-hmm. is better or worse except for the people who are in power, who can make that decision. Right. So going back to 1700s, 1600s, they were speaking wild British, uh, you know, accent English, you know, and that was really like proper English. And even if you go to the UK today, like you Americans, you don't speak proper English, this and that, <laughs> you know. Um, but when it comes down to it, like the Americans at the time in that era, they were considered unintelligent because they didn't have that proper British speaking when they were that dialect, right? So it's the same thing when it comes to Ebonics and things like that. It's, you know, this dominant group trying to use language to uh, have this type of power, whether it be uh, conversational power, institutional power, literacy power um, over other groups um, and being able to define what's what um, when it comes to new words and, you know, new ways of referring to things. Mm -hmm. Um, But within that, I think it's really important Especially that we have more Cardi Vs, that yeah. we have more, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of, you know, when I think of a good example, my, my professor, Dr. Payne, he would come through, you know, he was a real, like, he was a Harlem cat, like, he was a real Harlem dude, like, he used to rap at Apollo back in the 90s when, you know, people was shining back on 125 or whatever, like, and he was really doing it, but he was like, you know, I think that the way, the best way to get my message across is through academia, so mm-hmm. he decided to take that route, but... He didn't really change anything about himself. First day of class, he came through with the chain on. It was like a little, uh, like, ankh chain, you know. And he had the baggy pants. He had mm-hmm. the big sweater. And he just started rapping. He was, like, preaching to us. Like, it was it was a gospel. And it's that's powerful, you know, mm-hmm. because when you see that, it's like, what are the stereotypes behind a teacher? Your teacher's supposed to be wearing, you a know, suit. a suit. He's supposed to... Uh, be clean cut, mm-hmm. supposed to speak well, supposed to be smarter than you, intelligent, maybe even, you know, not black, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so when you think about that, to see an instructor, and that's why it's so powerful for me, to see an instructor up there spitting bars and bars of knowledge, but is just out there being his most natural black self. That's one of the more, most powerful things that I think that people can do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why, you know, when I go to class, like, I try... Not to, I mean, it's like when I go to class, I I don't necessarily dress like all fancy. I don't like tucking my shirt. You know, I'm kind of just trying to be myself because I don't, when you kind of get put yourself in that situation, you put on the suit, you kind of start to act like you have the suit on. Right. You know, and I'm not trying to go in front of these students and, you know, be anything that I'm not. You know, I do feel comfortable wearing a suit in front of them, tucking in my shirt and everything. But when it comes to relatability, mm-hmm. you know, I want them to really see me as not an instructor, but as a person who is instructing. Okay. You know? um, so looking at me as this guy isn't, you know, this crazy, credible, credible guy. He's just a normal person who just knows something more than me and has something to teach me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really the vibe that I try and give to my students. Um, and I think that. That's the most powerful thing you can do um, because instead of maybe conforming or, you know, assimilating to the standards of, you know, the uh, the academia, so like speaking properly and like doing all these type of status type of things, status behaviors, like mm-hmm. wearing suits and all that, 
that can really get you lost from your culture because you know maybe that's not where you what you do where you're from. Like you said, you know, you, uh, speaking in Ebonics and maybe some slang where you're from, and then going into uh, predominantly white institution where nobody speaks like that. Right. Um, and then you're like, well, is what I say wrong? It's not wrong. It's just different. Exactly. Um, but the thing is, the people who are in, have institutional control have the power to say that the way you are is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really what it comes down to. So, you know, everyone out there, if you're at work, um, you know, don't feel like you got to be pressured to code switch or anything You like is that. smart. You're smart. You, you is know? strong. Don't let anyone tell you <laughs> and you is that important. you can't do it. Just because of the way you sound, the way you look, or you know, you got hips or you got curly hair. I have dreadlocks, you know. When actually, it's crazy. Um, first class of semester, there's a class that comes up after mine. I was just um, wearing, I think I was wearing just like a button down shirt and some jeans because I think it was before Labor Day and I was like, I'm gonna wear this white shirt. I think I remember that, right? And after the class, I was packing my stuff up, I was in the front. Next class comes in and they're like, Who are you? Like, who are you? They're like, Oh, I just finished instructing this last class. And then mm-hmm. they were like, you're not a professor, like, you know, even though, you know, it's not, I'm not saying, like, they're this certain type of person that might right. stereotype me, but it was just, like, you know, I didn't look like a professor to these mm-hmm. students, right? So it's, like, well, I am a professor, <laughs> and I am an instructor, and I am able to teach you, but you already have this preconceived notion of who I'm supposed to be as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you kind of notice that somebody doesn't really conform to those things, it also gives you power to be yourself and to achieve um a lot of those things that you want to do as well, not having to cut off any previous perceptions or ways you behave before, things like that. That's beautiful. We appreciate you and other instructors and professors like you, Thank Darren. you. Definitely glad to, uh, to teach. You know, it's really something that I was into when I was young, and, you know, knowledge is power, so. It is. You know, it depends on what type of knowledge. Yeah, and the right knowledge. The right knowledge, I feel like, has to come from the right instructor. Mm-hmm. And the right instructor has to be somebody that you see yourself in. Exactly. So. Do you want to add anything else on like cultural bias and standardized tests before we go into something else? I guess maybe think about whether you would want to or be able to thrive in an environment that is culturally biased. Mm-hmm. People take jobs for different reasons. Um, but. Really sitting there and thinking, like, yeah, you know, maybe my coworkers might progress against me, or you know, people say that uh, I got my job because I'm black or something like that. But can you really go through that every day? You know, mm-hmm. that's hard. Um, thinking about whether you can do that, and then also thinking and having a support system outside of that to be able to bolster your uh, your identity. So you know, having a you know, you have you work, you go to work. You've done nine to five. That's the only time you think about that stuff. Going home, having your best friends or maybe a significant other, or you know, you have a, an activity that you do or something that you really are into that can get your mind off of all those other things that you that you do and that may stretch you off at work. And then also being able to use that as a way to maybe think about your identity outside of you know how much money you're making or like what type of job you have or all that type of prestige. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know a lot of the times especially with, uh, you know, minorities, a lot of the times what makes us feel good about ourselves isn't what we've achieved uh, monetarily, but maybe how what we achieve can relate to um, our culture. Right. And how we can use what we achieve to enrich our culture. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I can go on for hours. If you want to, you know, hit me up, I don't know if I'm going to be on the DM. Like, no, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. 
And this is a little off topic, but you um, also picked up photography not too long ago, yeah, almost yeah. a year ago. Almost Capture a year ago. Capture Downs. Yeah. Let's hear about that. I, uh, you know, I said I'm a graduate student, and during my first two years, I realized that I, all I was thinking about was kind of like school, school, school. Mm-hmm. You know, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? And like a lot of the stuff about cultural bias and academia um, and how that might affect me in the system. So, like, a lot of imposter syndrome is like, did I deserve to be here? You know, am I able to do this? Mm-hmm. Um, but I did. I took class, I learned a lot about, you know, ways to manage some of those uh, types of stigmatized identities in, in an environment, in an academic environment. And one of the things was just to, like I said, pick up something that makes you feel good about yourself outside of your job or outside of that, right. you know, task that you have to do. Um, so within the photography stuff, you know, a year ago, uh, you know, I have photography friends and they're, they're all dope people and I really liked the work that they were doing. I always liked visual imagery and all those different types of things. But I never really thought to buy my own camera until one of my friends just suggested it to me one day, let's like, go buy one and see what she was. If you like it or not, you can always sell it, mm-hmm. this and that. So I bought one maybe about a year ago and I used that as a way to kind of just get away from thinking about school all the time. Um, kind of like mindfulness, mm-hmm. therapeutic. So I would just go on walks and just take pictures and just like have time to myself, like that hour, that hour and a half to just do that. Um, and over time, the people really started to like my pictures. And I was like, I didn't really think this was going to, you know, be more than just like me having fun taking pictures. Um, so now it's kind of like transforming into like this kind of, kind of like photojournalism. I don't really know how to explain it, mm-hmm. but you know, I don't know. I'm just like really starting to take that uh, a little bit more seriously too and like just having fun with it and that allows me to you know not center my identity on how good I'm doing in school um, and it allows me to just kind of like be myself outside of school and not have to think about it all the time and I think that's really beneficial for a lot of people because uh, when you do do grad school like if I went to the school that I got waitlisted at that is literally all I would have been doing because I wouldn't have been in New York. I wouldn't have had all these opportunities to meet people and do all these different things outside mm-hmm. of the classroom. And I think I would have been really, really stressed out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just getting outside of your day-to-day and just picking up something that you can just enjoy for yourself. So how do you choose people to... Um, how do you choose your muses for uh, Capture Downs? They're all just friends. Yeah? Yeah. I'm, I'm not, like, you know, clouded up or nothing. At least <laughs> maybe not yet or whatever. But, uh, you know, so it's just, like, I have friends that all do dope stuff. Like, you, you do this podcast. Like, a lot of my friends already were in photography or may, um, you know, do mo- be models or do uh, some type of clothing or, you know, have a nonprofit. And, you know, everyone's always looking for a photographer. Right. So it's like... Well, I have the skill, and I like to do it for fun, um, so why not take pictures of my friends? And, right. you know, through that, I was able to get better at it, and, you know, people started really reaching out saying, this is some good stuff, like, you should maybe start to do this a little bit more. Um, so, yeah, um, just that year ago, it was really interesting to see how it's kind of grown over the year. Um, yeah. You know, um, and really became a cool thing, so. Well, congrats on that. I'm excited to see the journey of Capture Now and see thank you, thank you. how it's going to grow and it's everything. Really exciting. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess it's time to go into the Lemonade Pick of the Week. And this week, I got a DM on the Avocado and Honey Instagram page that y'all should be following from Danielle XOX underscore 13. Shout out to you. She wants to nominate 
Thick Leonce um, for Lemonade Pick of the Week, basically just for embracing herself and just standing up for herself. Um, like Maya Angelou said, each time a woman stands up for herself without knowing it, possibly without claiming it, she stands up for all women. And um, let me tell you how she stood up for herself. There was some dude on Twitter um, that was trying to make a meme with like a thin girl and then her being a thicker girl with the caption saying girls that I like, um, referring to the smaller girl versus girls that like me, referring to thick Leonce. And she just uh, retweeted it and put, boo, I don't like you. Well, she said, I don't like you. That was me, you know. Yeah, that was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, and it's just like, yo, you can't come for her. Like, she really looks, can't. she's fucking beautiful. So it's just like, thank you, Thick Leonce, for standing up for yourself because you're standing up for all of us. So uh, you are this week's Lemonade Pick of the Week. Um, now it's time for my favorite segment, um, to love a black woman. So that's um, where the guest, you, Darren, you get to say something that you love about a black woman in particular. So um, your mom, cousin, sister, or you can say something that you love about black women in general. Well, You're on. Sh- I'm about to shout out my sister right now because okay. uh, I just turned 25 uh, on Saturday and I have a twin sister. Um, and... You know, my sister, she's so smart. Like, she just took a test today. She's in medical school. She just took a test today. She got such a good grade, 91. Proud of you. Um, Yo, yes, that's beautiful. Yeah, like, that's, that's great. That's like, come on, it's med school. Like, that's not easy. <laughs> like, but she's always been someone that's always been so intelligent and so, like, you know, steadfast in her intelligence. She, like, knew, she always knew she was going to be a doctor. She never strayed away from that goal, ever. Like, you know, so she was always in those honor classes. And, you know, just having a black woman in your life that is excelling, that's actually doing better than you in a lot of different things is very, very, like, inspiring. Um, and growing up, I always looked up to her for, you know, the academic stuff. I was like, oh, you know, maybe because everyone's like, you're not as smart as Doreen, but it was always like, you know, whatever, I'm good at other <laughs> stuff. I'm intelligent in other ways, right? Um, <clears throat> but, you know, really, I'm, like, I'm really proud of her and what she does. And, uh, you know... Being that she's a black woman and is pursuing her medical degrees, something that I think is awesome and I think that is really opening the door. I feel like our generation is opening the door for a lot of other uh, people of color who are coming up in the education system to really just want to do stuff um, beyond what society tells them that they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so going to get your advanced degree and whatever, going to med school, becoming lawyers, so many different women that I know, black women that are doing so many different advanced things, my sister included, and all her friends, really, all y'all clouded. So mm-hmm. y'all keep doing your thing, keep uh, keep striving, and, you know, keep making all of us proud. Um, yeah. Yes, shout out to sister. all y'all. Yeah. Uh, thank y'all for being you. All right. Well, thank you, Darren, for um, speaking with me on this subject. Um, where can the people find you? Uh, you can follow my uh, my photo Instagram at Catch Nouns. Um and yeah, that's that's where you can start. Okay, if you could dig out the rest. You'll be able to dig out the rest. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you guys can find me on all social media platforms at underscore smangie s m a n g i e e. I am starting to use Twitter more. You guys, I really hated Twitter, but I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm tweeting. So if you want to follow me there, feel free. No pressure. Um, again. Thank you for tuning in every other Tuesday. Please uh, like, subscribe, share, tell a friend about the podcast if you fuck with avocado and honey. Um, Yeah, until next time. Yes, peace, everyone. (laughs) Adios.